Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 28, the book of Revelation, chapter 13. We had just begun Revelation chapter 13 last week when we ran out of time. So we're going to continue with it today. Now, as a, just a brief review, the events foretold by chapter 13 were not just future for John. They are future also for us. This chapter is dominated by three characters. The dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. Now, references to these characters continues well after chapter 13. So we need to sort them out. We need to kind of get them firmly in mind, where they're placed, who they are, who they symbolize. The dragon symbolizes Satan. And he was unequivocally identified as such one chapter back. In verse 9 of chapter 12, we read, The great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent, also known as the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels were hurled down with him. The sea beast is the first of two so-called beasts to arise in chapter 13. He emerges from the ocean while the dragon, Satan, stands on the seashore either waiting for him to appear or more likely summoning him. The sea beast and the dragon have very similar appearances. They each have seven heads and ten horns, which indicates their intimate connection. Now, one of the main ways to tell which is which is that back in chapter 12, verse 3, we were told that the dragon was red in color. No doubt this is why most illustrations, paintings, and cartoons of the devil are that he's red. On the other hand, the sea beast's main feature is he was colored like a leopard, presumably with spots. The next feature difference is that the dragon had seven crowns adorning his seven heads, while the sea beast had ten crowns adorning his ten horns. So we must not overlook the use of the numbers here, seven and ten. Seven is the ideal number. It indicates completeness, wholeness, at times, finality. Ten is a number that also indicates a kind of completeness, but more in the sense of all-inclusiveness, universality. Now, I mentioned last week that we should notice that Satan is mimicking God. And he does so because his chief weapon, remember this, Satan's chief weapon is deception. So it's no wonder that the devil incorporates the numbers 7 and 10 in his physical appearance. Because 7 and 10 are usually associated with godly actions. And since one of the primary characteristics of God is that he manifests himself in multiple ways that we tend to call persons, which Christianity long ago transformed into the Trinity doctrine, so we find Satan attempting the same thing. That is, Satan appears to us in Revelation as a kind of Trinity the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. And we're going to see a bit later, Satan will even try to mimic Christ 
and that special prophet that announced his advent. Now another important characteristic of the evil triumvirate is that like God the Father, who is the ultimate holder of universal power and authority, which he assigns in part to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, Satan is preeminent over the realm of evil and is the source of the power and authority that he gives, in part, to the sea beast and to the land beast. Now we have so much to discuss today, and it is difficult, it's complex, but it's enlightening. So let's reread all of chapter 13 to get our foundation good and set for today's discussion. Turn your Bibles, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, to page 1544. This is Revelation chapter 13. And remember, I'm going to start reading from from 1218 because that short little section actually belongs as the beginning of chapter 13, not the ending of chapter 12. Then the dragon stood on the seashore, and I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten royal crowns, on its heads blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, but with feet like those of a bear and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now to it the dragon gave its power, its throne, and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast appeared to have received a fatal wound, but its fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement. And they worshipped the dragon, because he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? It was given a mouth, speaking arrogant blasphemies. It was given authority to act for 42 months. So it opened its mouth and blasphemies against God to insult his name and his Shekinah and those living in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on God's holy people and to, to defeat them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. Everyone living on earth will worship it except those whose names are written in the book of life belonging to the lamb slaughtered before the world was founded. Those who have ears, let them hear. If anyone is meant for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he is to be killed. This is when God's holy people must persevere and trust. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and it had two horns like those of a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, the one whose fatal head wound had been healed. It performs great miracles, even causing fire to come down from heaven onto the earth as people watch. It deceives the people living on earth by the miracles it is allowed to perform in the presence of the beast. It tells them to make an image honoring the beast that was struck by the sword, but he came alive again. It was allowed to put breath into the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak. And it was allowed to cause anyone who would uh, not worship the image of the beast to be put to death. It also forces everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, preventing anyone from buying or selling unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is where wisdom is needed. Those who understand should count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. And its number is 666. Now since we've thoroughly discussed 
already the first couple of verses. Let's move right on to verse 3. And I ask that you keep those Bibles open today. Keep your finger right there. And that you follow along your, the, the Scripture verses closely as I speak to you about them today. Verse 3 says that one of the seven heads of the beast, meaning the sea beast, since we've yet to be introduced to the second beast, the land beast, it seems to have been fatally wounded, but was miraculously healed, and it so impressed the citizens of the world that they gave their allegiance to the sea beast. Now, just to be clear, the figures of the dragon and of the sea beast are symbolic and not literal. So that means that when they will appear, it will be as human beings. Or perhaps, in some cases, human institutions. The world will not see a literal seven-headed monster and an actual red dragon-like creature and then weirdly follow them any more than we would today. At least I hope. In fact, says verse 4, the world will more than give their undying allegiance to the sea beast. They will worship him. In other words, the sea beast will be seen as divine or at least the level of public awe will be so great that they put all their trust in him even if that trust might be more fear-based than adoring for many. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? You know, perhaps the best, most recent analogy would be that the beast will be like Hitler only on a worldwide scale. You know, while some in Germany Germany willingly and with great hope gave Hitler glory and even love, more were simply in fear of him. And they believed that because of his unmatchable power and cunning, they had little choice but to follow and obey him. Now I want to pause here for a moment. This passage does not actually say that the world will give its allegiance to the sea beast. It says the world will give its allegiance to the dragon. The world will give its allegiance to Satan. Think about that. But like God, Satan's an invisible spirit. So how is the world going to give its allegiance to something that's invisible? It will be via giving their allegiance to the visible, tangible human being that that sea beast symbolizes. The one who operates under the power and authority that was given to him by Satan. So in the end, it's the same as the world giving its allegiance to Satan. See, it works the same way with God. When we give our allegiance to Christ, who was certainly not an invisible divine spirit when he roamed the Holy Land 2,000 years ago, but rather was a visible, tangible human being, who operated under the power and authority given to him by God in heaven. Then it's the same <coughs> excuse me, as giving our allegiance to God the Father in heaven. I mean, remember what Yeshua once said in John 14, 9, and Yeshua replied to him, Have I been with you so long without your knowing me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So just as Christ was a heaven-sent agent of God the Father, 
so very representative of every marvelous attribute of God the Father, but still Yeshua was not God the Father, so will the sea beast be a hell-sent agent of Satan, displaying every evil attribute of Satan, but still will not be Satan. And as with Christ saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, so it will be that when people see the sea beast, whoever that human being is, they will have seen Satan. You with me on that? See, this, by the way, is the same sense that we're supposed to be taking John 14.9. And it's this, also the sense we are to take this, then this passage in Revelation. Now, who or what exactly is the sea beast? <clears throat> As we discussed last week, depending on the theological source... He's either the Antichrist, who is a great world political leader, or he is the false prophet, a great world religious leader. <clears throat> there is no consensus on this. Now, I personally believe that the weight of scriptural evidence favors that the sea beast represents the Antichrist as well as remember this thing has multiple heads okay as well as the nations and the leaders from whence he comes and is at first given his earthly political authority but why is it that this beast emerges from the sea i find there are two reasons for this first we have a sea beast and then separately a land beast because Satan has for eons been given authority by God to be the prince of the earth. Thus, a satanic leader from the sea and another one from the land are Satan fraudulently mimicking that mighty angel back from Revelation 10 the one with one foot on the land and the other foot on the sea in my opinion that mighty angel was the angel of the Lord a manifestation of God back in Revelation 10 5 through 7 just to help remind you then, I, then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand towards heaven and swore by the one who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what's in it created earth and what's in it and the sea and what's in it there will be no more delay on the contrary in the days of the sound from the seventh angel when he sounds the shofar the hidden plan of God will be brought to completion the good news as he proclaimed it to his servants the prophets so the mighty angel is declaring God's sovereignty over the entire earth by having one foot on the land the other foot on the sea and then pronouncing an oath swearing by Jehovah so now Satan, <clears throat> he brings forth an evil angel, so to speak, from the land, another one from the sea, to show that he intends on hanging on to his rulership over the entire earth. A rulership that the Lord says has already been removed from him and turned over to Christ. Which, by the way, is a relatively new development that was announced only in Revelation chapter 11. But it's, it's something which Satan intends to continue to battle to keep that status quo where he's prince of the earth. Revelation 11, this reminds you again, 15 through 17. 
The seventh angel sounded his shofar and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will rule forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones of God's presence fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We thank you Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who is and who was, that you have taken your power and begun to rule. So the transfer occurred in Revelation chapter 11 from Satan as the prince of the world to Yeshua as king of the world. Now the second reason that we have a beast emerging from the sea is that biblically speaking, nearly without exception, the imagery of a sea monster or a sea dragon is symbolic of wicked kings and nations that oppresses God's chosen people, Israel. Nearly always. Very often, the evil kingdom is Egypt. Even the great Pharaoh in the days of Moses was spoken of as a sea dragon. In Ezekiel 29.3 Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own. I've made it for myself. Now, by the way, I want to tell you, I just quoted from the King James Version. Because here it agrees with other scholarly translations, while the complete Jewish Bible, frankly, took pretty great liberties with the same passage assigning the word crocodile instead of dragon or monster to the Hebrew word panim, which means monster, a monster of sorts. So the symbolic meaning of the sea from which comes the sea beast is that the beast is emerging from an ocean of wicked nations and wicked peoples. That Egypt is the emblem throughout the Bible for a wicked nation that oppresses God's people makes this meaning even more informative because Egypt is a remnant not only of the Roman Empire but also of the Greek Empire and the Greek Empire was symbolized in Daniel, the book of Daniel by a leopard and the leopard is the primary physical characteristic of the sea beast hope you see the connection with all this so let's talk a bit about this fatal wound given to the sea beast. First of all, the wound would only have been fatal to but one of the seven heads. And the verse clearly says that. So only one of the seven heads of this beast would have potentially died. Not the entirety of the sea beast. So the seven heads have to represent seven separate separate people or institutions or entities of some sort. But somehow that particular person, likely, or entity survived. And because of their miraculous recovery, the world believed that what was probably a person, probably a great national leader was either superhuman or supernatural. Now note how this fatal head wound and recovery from it mimics the death and supernatural resurrection of Christ. However, many modern commentators believe that what John was alluding to was the hated Roman Emperor Nero. Late in his reign, perhaps 20 years before John wrote Revelation, Nero had his throat cut on the authority of the Roman Senate, and he died. However, a rumor spread that he had miraculously survived and had escaped to Parthia. Many people 
including his enemies, expected him to return alive and with an army to help him regain power. Playing upon that expectation, a few months later an imposter appeared who claimed to be a resurrected Nero. And he gathered a following who wanted to put him back in charge because they thought he was Nero, back in charge of the empire. He was quickly hunted down and killed. Now, of course, the bulk of Bible commentators who accept this bit of history as to what John was alluding to are not believers, but rather are merely Bible experts. And few of them believe in the spiritual, the miraculous, or the prophetic. Nevertheless, from John's perspective, what he's speaking about for him was the future. It's not something from the past. And Nero was about 20 years past from John. So it couldn't have been Nero. Alright, now back to the sea beast with the ten crowns on his ten horns. Horns, biblically, are usually symbols of great political powers. Governments, nations. And the crowns indicate kings of those nations. The belief among evangelical Christian writers and theologians has since not very long after World War II been that the prophesied ten nations are a confederation of ten European states. Because Winston Churchill recommended and predicted such a political organization that was designed to stop this endless series of devastating intra-European wars. So the European Union was created in 1993 and it began with 10 nations. So for some this was proof positive that the sea beast is the European Union out of which will come the Antichrist. But I find that to be highly unlikely. For one reason, the EU today consists not of 10, but of 28 member states. And part of the reason for the belief that this passage in Revelation is prophetic of the European Union is because the belief is that the overall, that, that overall the sea beast represents a revived Roman Empire based on the unnamed fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 and that the sea beast is a composite of four nations represented by Daniel's uh, four nation empires represented by Daniel's four beasts thus Daniel's four beasts were Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece and then Rome now while I fully agree with the identification of those four empires as being represented by Daniel's four beasts I'm very doubtful about the ten nations represented by the sea beast ten's horns as being the EU. Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, being in Italy, at least today, only has any real power or any future prospect of any power from the religious sphere, not from the political or economic spheres. And that sphere that I and power that I speak of is the Vatican which is the capital of the Catholic Church and I cannot see the Catholic Church as a future world political power or anything that could resemble a future world empire rather now, I completely acknowledge the world conditions can turn on a dime if we were to look today to find a ten-nation confederacy that hates Israel and its people, out of which an antichrist could arise, we would be better to look at Middle Eastern Muslim nations. One reason that we should at least be open to the possibility is that Egypt, the long-standing biblical epitome 
of a nation that hates Israel and oppresses Israel could easily be in some way involved in a ten Muslim nation confederacy, confederacy that represents the sea beast. For another reason. While Westerners and Christians see Islam as purely a religion, in fact, Islam is a government system with the goal of governing the globe. Thus, Islam is as much political as it is religious. Now, with that thought in mind, let's take a small detour here. Since one of the enduring topics among Christians is who this predicted, all-important, ten-nation confederacy of anti-Semite nations might be. Because out of them comes the Antichrist. And to address this, I'm going to borrow heavily from a lecture I gave on one of the tours I led to Israel several years ago. So if you were on that tour, this might sound familiar. The international borders of today's nations in the Middle East are on the verge of being redefined according to a biblical pattern. And they're going to be redefined into ten national divisions along with an eleventh division called Assyria, which will arise out of Iraq sometime after the USA completely leaves it. The world is not going to allow Israel, even as the result of a war they might not start, to assume occupation or control over the present national areas called Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and those regions governed under the present Palestinian Authority that itself is currently fractured into separate governments. One in Gaza under Hamas, the other in the so-called West Bank under Fatah. The scriptures seem to indicate that these various territories will actually be divided into smaller states. Now when this political division of ten national states is realized, you know, kind of the ultimate land for peace deal, a period of peace and prosperity will develop for that entire region that will make it the envy of the world. This will occur when those ten small political divisions also unite together in a way that the European Union has always envisioned for itself but has never come close to achieving it. All of this that I'm telling you is shown in several prophecies in the Holy Scriptures, but it's pinpointed in detail in Psalm 83, a psalm describing a political confederacy of ten small nations around Israel on the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. And when this new political arrangement becomes evident, peace and prosperity will come to the Middle East. It will only last for a divinely ordained period of time. Open your Bibles to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 874. 874. Follow along with me. A song, a psalm of Asaph. God, don't remain silent. Don't stay quiet, God, or still, because here are your enemies causing an uproar. Those who hate you are raising their heads, craftily conspiring against your people, consulting together against those you treasure. They say, come on, let's wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. 
With one mind they plot their schemes. The covenant they have made is against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelim, the Ishmaelites, the Arabs. Moab and the Hagrim, Geval, Ammon, and Amalek. Peleshtet, that's uh, Philist, uh, uh, Philistia. With those living in Zor, Asher too is allied with them to reinforce the descendants of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, to Sisra and Yavin at the Wadi Kishon. They were destroyed at Eindor and became manure for the ground. Make their leaders like Orev and Ziev, all their princes like Zavok and Salmunah, who said, let's take possession of God's meadows for ourselves. My God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff driven by the wind like fire burning up the forest, like a flame that sets the mountains ablaze. Drive them away with your storm. Terrify them with your tempest. Fill their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, Adonai. Let them be ashamed and fearful forever. Yes, let them perish in disgrace. Let them know that you alone, whose name is Adonai, are the most high over all the earth. Now while we need to take seriously what these prophecies state will actually happen, we first need to recognize an essential point. The Philistines are mentioned prominently in prophetic context dealing with the day of the Lord. Now this is a period yet future to us. Much is written about the Philistines in prophecies that have not yet taken place. Find them in Zephaniah 2, 4 through 7, if you want to go there, Zephaniah 2, 4 through 7, Zechariah 9, 5 through 7, and especially now in Psalm 83. That was Zechariah 9, 5 through 7. Now in Psalm 83, in particular, the Pelishtet, the Philistines, are reckoned as one of ten nations that design an attack on the land of Israel to destroy the people of Israel and so bring an end. That's their goal, it says, to the nation of Israel. That prophecy, what we just read in Psalm 83, has not yet occurred in history. And the Philistines are going to be very much involved in helping to fulfill it. That's right. There are prophesied to be ten, count them, ten nations in the Middle East that confederate, confederate together in an effort to send the nation of Israel into oblivion. Now besides Psalm 83, there is another section of scripture that speaks of a confederacy of peoples that will be evident at the end of the age just before the second advent of Christ. This confederacy is mentioned in the book of Daniel chapters 2 and 7. It is entirely possible that the ten specifically named nations of Psalm 83 are the same as those implied by Daniel as opposed to what many think today is a European-based union of nations called the EU. Now since the Philistines are front and center and these end times predictions, then a proper recognition of who the Philistines are today is necessary for the identification of all the peoples mentioned in the biblical prophecies. The first reference we have to Philistines is in the Table of Nations, recorded in Genesis chapter 10, and it's repeated again, by the way, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. And it states something really important. It is that the Philistines had their origin from the same ancestor as the early Egyptians. Same ancestor for the Egyptians as the Philistines. This was, by the way, in the Bible, in Hebrew, um, uh, Egypt is Mitzrayim. All right, and you'll find about this, you find what I'm talking about here in Genesis 10, 13, and 14. Now, the fact is that not only is the word Palestine 
Greek for Philistine. But a great deal of the modern Palestinians are, as their very name suggests, descendants of the ancient Philistines, who themselves are descendants of the founder of Egypt. God recognizes that some of the people are of mixed ethnic characteristics. You'll note that especially in Zechariah 9.6. But this biblical indication does not mean that the main people are disqualified from being Philistines just because they have some mixed ethnic background. What does this all mean? In Psalm 83, we have a graphic description of ten separate nations or peoples surrounding the nation of Israel. In our time, those nations would be all Muslim nations. The account in this psalm, I repeat, has never occurred in history. The end of the psalm relates how the events described are going to lead up to Jehovah, God of Israel, being declared the Most High over all the earth. The time setting of Psalm 83 is shown by its position in the book of Psalms. The psalm describes a time just before the kingdom of God is established over all the earth. Just before. And since this is true, we may indeed have a prime prophecy revealing more or less who the ten nations are of Daniel and Revelation. This reference in Psalm 83 is a significant key, I believe, to end times events that all prophetic interpreters ought to recognize and not just remain fixated on, frankly, what's proving to be a dead end. And that dead end is the EU as the Ten Nation Confederacy from which comes the Antichrist. So while what I presented to you can in no way be thought of as ironclad proof or is it going to settle the debate, it has to be considered, at least from the worldview of 2019, as reasonable, plausible, as a biblically sound candidate to identify the makeup of the Ten Nation Confederation symbolized by the sea beast. And at the present time is more, much more likely that than the, any European Union. So, with that to ponder, let's move on. It's always wise to look back at what the earliest church fathers had to say about biblical matters and especially about the book of Revelation because they were unencumbered by today's political correctness and they were far closer to the time that the Bible was written. Caesarius of Arlay, a church father who lived in the late 400s AD and was a bishop in what today is called France had this to say about the identification of the sea beast. He said, And the dragon gave him his power, for we see how the heretics who have the power of the devil are powerful in this world. For just as formerly it was the pagans that devastated the church, now it's the heretics. So for Caesarius, the sea beasts are church heretics. Now, Victorious of Petovium, who lived in the 200s AD, closer yet to the time of John, had this to say about the subject in his commentary on the Apocalypse. God will send a king worthy of those who are worthy of him, namely the Jews and those who persecute Christ. And he will send him as a Christ, such as the persecutors and the Jews deserve. To be sure, he would not be able to seduce the people of the circumcision were he not to pose as a defender of the law. So Victor Victorinus 
seeing the sea beast as primarily the Antichrist says the Antichrist is going to pose as a defender of the law of Moses. He does not claim that the Antichrist will actually be a Jew but only that he might pose as a Jew or at least as a person who convinces the Jewish people that he believes that the law of Moses remains valid. Tychonius, who lived in the 300s AD, in between the first two I talked about, gives us his view on the sea beast. One of its heads refers to the Antichrist, because there are seven heads, not in regard to number, but as a sign of universality of that earthly kingdom that is hostile to the Lamb. So Tychonius sees the seven heads of the sea beast as symbolic of all the nations that Satan will deceive. Of course implying that the number will be much greater than seven because then seven is only symbolic of a much greater number for him. Now I've given you just a very small sampling of what the early church fathers thought about the Antichrist and the sea beast and those views remain as among the most popular views still being held in the 21st century. The fact that so many views exist even from the earliest beginnings of the church will again prove as a caution for us. Your view and my view of what the actual fulfillment of currently unfulfilled prophecies may look like has to be held lightly. Lightly. Because all we can see is from our very narrow slice of time in the history of the world. World conditions can change rapidly especially in the modern era, we could easily be incorrect about what we think the many symbols of revelation reveal when their time for revealing arrives. Now I'm going to repeat something that I said at the outset of today's discussion because it's so central to understanding the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. It is that Satan is out to mimic and to mock God. So when in verse 4, for example, those who worship the sea beast chant, Who's like the beast? It is mimicking, it is mocking the archangel Michael who fought the battle against Satan in heaven and prevailed, thus kicking Satan out of heaven. This is because Michael's Hebrew name is Michael and his name means who is like God. See what's happening here? Who is like the beast? Who is like God? So when in verses 5 and 6 we're told that the sea beast was given a mouth to speak blasphemies against the Lord, then we can see that these blasphemies are in the form of mimicking and mocking God. We've already seen examples of them. But surprisingly, we're also informed in verse 7 that the sea beast has been allowed by God to make war against God's followers. And I'm sorry to say, to defeat us. This defeat will be nearly universal because this is going to affect, we're told, every tribe, every people, language, every nation, everyone on planet Earth, but with one notable exception. And we're told about that in verse 8. Only those whose names are written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb will be exempt. True believers. Even so, the ominous words of verses 9 and 10 make it clear that what it means to not be defeated by Satan and his sea beast is that our faith 
And so our place in heaven will remain intact. While others who may profess some level of belief in Christ will lose even that. Our Savior warned us about that day that's ahead. In Matthew 7, 21-27, He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what My Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will come to Me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name? Didn't we expel demons in Your name? Didn't we perform miracles in Your name? Then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on bedrock. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew, beat against the house, but it didn't collapse. Because his foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a stupid man who builds his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew, it beat against that house and it collapsed. And its collapse, it was horrendous. So check your faith. Check your faith. Yeshua says the measure he will use isn't in merely saying you believe in him. It isn't in how many church events you attend. It isn't in it isn't how pious you outwardly seem. It is in the doing, he says, of what the Father says to do. It is in obedience. Even so, staying absolutely true to the Lord by no means says that we're going to be spared suffering. or imprisonment or death by the actions of the Antichrist and those who are subordinate to him. In fact, we ought to expect it. We're going to continue chapter 13 next time.